And we'll just dive right into the controversy tonight <laughs> of all the fun stuff that we've got to talk about. And um, kind of picking up on last week. So let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. And um, first of all, we just want to say thanks for being a great and mighty God, a gracious God, a, a God who takes care of us, a God who is merciful. And as I was even reminded in reading this morning, that every spiritual blessing comes from you, God, in Christ. And you've blessed us in so many ways. And oftentimes we're not thankful for the ways you've blessed us. And so we just want to stop and say thanks um, just for your mercy. Help us tonight, Holy Spirit, to understand these truths. Help us to um, get a grasp on them. Um, help me to make it clear. And uh, in all things, Jesus, every time we meet and every time we gather, we want you to be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's uh, recap a little bit from last week. And we talked about two different views of election. And if you remember what, what I said, if you ever come across a person that says, I don't believe in election, I don't believe the Bible teaches predestination, I don't believe God chooses anybody, you have to press them on that because those words are used in the Bible. Words like choosing, words like predestinating, words like electing. And so the real question is, is what's the basis? What's the grounds for God's election of individuals to be saved. So let's just kind of recap the two views. Um, the Arminian view says, and, and again, both views happened before creation. Both views happened before the creation of the world. The Arminian view says that God looks down through the corridors of time, and he sees what you're going to do. If God sees you accepting Christ for salvation, he's going to choose you based upon what he sees. So it's conditional election. You've got to meet the conditions. The conditions being repentance and faith. Once God sees that, he elects you. If he doesn't see you choosing him, he doesn't elect you. That's the Arminian view, conditional election. The Calvinistic view says election is unconditional. There are no conditions that a sinner has to meet. God simply chooses because God decides to choose out of his sovereign will. If God were to look down through the corridors in time and see something happening, he wouldn't see anybody choosing because everyone's dead in sin. So it's, a, it's an unconditional type election. So let me just, I kind of put it in a sentence for you. Not really a sentence, it's more like a paragraph there. <clears throat> let me give you a definition of unconditional election. And this is from a book the five points of Calvinism, I just took it right out of the book, but I thought it was a pretty good, concise definition of unconditional election. Before the foundation of the world, God chose certain individuals from among fallen humanity to be objects of his undeserved favor. These and only these he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all people, for he has the power and authority to do so. Or he could have chosen to save none, for he was under no obligation to show mercy to any. But he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his good pleasure and sovereign will. Therefore, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. That's a very clear statement of the Calvinistic view of election. And last week, we looked at a lot of different passages of Scripture, especially Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we looked at John and the statements of Jesus about election. 
We looked at the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8. What we're going to dive into tonight is the hardest passage in all of the Bible, not to understand, I don't think, but to accept. So let's look at Romans chapter 9. You can turn there in your own Bible, or I've got it there on your handout. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10. And we're just going to read this. We're going to look at some observations. We're going to kind of work through this text and see what Paul has to say about this whole idea of sovereign election. So Romans chapter 9, 10 through 16. Paul writes, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, Let's look at some observations just from this passage of Scripture. What is this text saying? So, the first thing we see is God's election of individuals was before birth. He's talking about two sons, right? Jacob and Esau, two brothers. When does the text here say the election took place? They had not yet been born. So it was before their birth that this election took place. It wasn't after the fact. It was before they were born. Also, God's election was not based on anything Jacob and Esau would do, either good or bad. Okay. If you believe the foreknowledge Arminian view of election, then your election or God's election is based upon something he sees them doing. In the, uncondi- in, 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 in the Arminian view of this passage, they would say, God looked down and saw Jacob believing and Esau not believing, and based upon what God saw, he chose. What does this text say? God chose them before they had done anything, either good or bad. So there was nothing that they did, good or bad, that prompted God to elect them. It was before either one of them had done anything. Okay? Let's keep moving. And we make sure this, here we go. Our thing is kind of slow tonight. God's election was before birth. We got that. God's election was based solely on his divine purpose to do so. What does it say? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. God had a purpose in electing Jacob, and passing over Esau. It was because of his purpose of election. Okay? Also, we're having, okay. God set his electing love upon Jacob and not on Esau. You've got a very strong statement there. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I thought God wasn't supposed to hate anybody. 
how do you deal with the passage of Scripture that says God loved one person and God hated another person? It was before both of them were born, before both of them had done anything either good or bad, and it was because of God's purpose. That's what the Bible says. So we've got to kind of grapple with that. God's, I don't know why this is doing that. God has the sovereign right to show mercy and compassion to whomever he wants. What does it say there? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, God has the right to do it. Nobody can tell God he has to have mercy on anybody. Nobody tells God he has to have compassion on anybody. God has the the sole right to determine who he's going to show love to because he is God. And then there's another statement in there. Election is not based upon our will or anything we do, but solely on God's mercy. What does that last statement say there in verse 16? So then it depends not. What is it? What is, it, what is the it there? God's purpose in election does not depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, I'll just give you, I'll, I'll just give you my, my view here. This passage of Scripture right here is the strongest passage of Scripture that teaches unconditional election. That God has the sovereign right to choose based upon His sovereign will. Not on anything He foresees, not on any conditions that have to be met by sinners. God does it because He does it. Now we may not like that, we may struggle with that, but you can't argue with what the text says. Now, Paul is smart. He's going to expect an objection. If you're thinking about the objections that Paul's going to give, what do you think somebody's going to stand up and say? That's not fair. And he answers that. What does he say? Look at verse 14. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He's saying, is God unfair? Is God unjust? Absolutely not. God is not unjust in choosing Esau over Jacob. Now let me give you a quote from Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans. I think it's a pretty insightful statement. He says this, If Paul had assumed that faith was the basis for God's election, he would have pointed this out when he raised the question in verse 14 about the fairness of God's election. All he would have needed to say at that point was, Of course God is not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. For his choosing took into account the faith of one and the unbelief of another. Paul's silence on this point is telling. So let me ask you a question. What's more amazing? God hating Esau or God loving Jacob? Have you read Genesis in a while? Is Jacob a good guy? He's just as much of a shyster as his brother. Jacob means heel grabber. Jacob means deceiver. All throughout the book of Genesis until there's that moment of crisis where I believe Jacob actually, you know, God gets a hold of Jacob and he has that transformation, uh, salvation experience, if you will, in the Old Testament. Jacob is a liar. He's a manipulator. He is an... There's nothing in Jacob that would say he is worthy more worthy over Esau. They're both unworthy. And so for God to show Jacob 
love is just as amazing of a statement to think about God hating Esau. Now, some people will say, well, what's, what's the Greek word for hate? Because <laughs> they want to throw out the Greek. Well, that's the word hate. And some people will say, well, it means to love less. Does that help it any? Because God's still showing a discrimination. He's, even if, if, you, if you don't like the word hate and you like the word love less, he's still showing a different attitude towards Jacob than he is towards Esau. Okay, let's keep going down the passage of Scripture. Let's go down to verse 20. Because Paul is going to think of another objection. I, I can just imagine if you're sitting here and Paul's preaching this for the first time and you're this Roman house church that's getting this letter, you would be, well, Paul, wait a minute, that, that's unfair, that's unjust. Now wait a minute, Paul. And he's expecting that. And so he kind of puts people in their place here. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Kind of taking those concepts from Isaiah, the potter and the clay imagery. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Now, if you're looking on your sheet, I bolded some words there. And so let's look at some observations from this passage of Scripture. We, as the clay, have no right to tell the potter how to do things. We may not like how God does stuff. We may not like this statement that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But the bottom line is, we're the clay, God's the potter. We can't talk back to God. We have no right to tell God how he should do it. He is God. Now, also... Out of all humanity, there are some who have been chosen as vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and some who have been chosen as vessels of mercy before the foundation of the world. Okay. This is a very, very strong statement that you've got to deal with. If you're going to read Romans 9, it's going to, it's going to cause some, some, some emotions. This passage of Scripture is saying that there's one lump of clay. What is that one lump of clay? All humanity. Out of all humanity, there are what? Two groups of people. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. The vessels of wrath have been prepared for destruction before the foundation of the earth. The vessels of mercy have been prepared for, for glory before the foundation of the earth. So God has made a choice that he's going to choose some and not choose others. There are going to be some who are recipients of mercy, some who are recipients of wrath. And it's God's purpose of election that causes that. Now, in doing this, in electing, some... We've got a delay. In electing some and not electing others, God shows all of his attributes. 
That's very, very hard to come to grips with. But Paul says it right there. What is God doing in, what is God demonstrating with these vessels of wrath? He's showing his wrath and his power. So you have the full gamut of God's attributes. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. He's also a God of power. So all of God's attributes are on display here. Now, some people, most Arminians, argue that what Paul is talking about here with Jacob and Esau is not individual election. It's not people that he's talking about here. And it has nothing to do with salvation. He's talking about national election. The Arminian view is that this has nothing to do with personal salvation. This has everything to do with God choosing Jacob to be the nation Israel and God passing over Esau or Edom to be a a chosen nation. So it has nothing to do with individual salvation. The only problem with that is all of the, the, the descriptions that we've seen so far deal with personal actions before they did anything good or bad. That God's purpose of election might stand. Vessels of honor. Vessels of wrath. Nowhere here does he talk about nations. He's talking about people here. And why would Paul answer the objections if he was talking about nations? If he was talking about nations, nobody would really have a problem with that. If we just said, God chose the Israelites, he didn't choose the Edomites, most people wouldn't have a problem with that. So why is Paul answering these objections? And also, look at the very last statement there in verse 24. Can it be about the Jews being chosen? What does verse 24 say? Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, this is not talking about this corporate or national election. This is talking about the elective election of individuals. Because in the middle of this, I didn't, I didn't even go down this trajectory. We didn't talk about Pharaoh. Is Pharaoh an, an individual or is he a nation? He's an individual. And it says he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Um, there's an individual there that he's talking about. Jacob the individual, Esau the individual, Pharaoh the individual. The bottom line is this. God has the right to show mercy on who he wants to show mercy. God has right to show compassion on who he wants to show compassion on. We may not like it. We may not agree with it. It may make us uncomfortable. But you can't escape that Romans 9 teaches that God has the sovereign right to elect who he wants to elect. Now, Let's look at two other passages in the New Testament that teach election. Last week we looked at the golden chain in Romans 8. We looked at John 17 and John 10 and Ephesians 1. Let's look at some from the Thessalonian letters. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There's just the word. I just want to show you that word's there in the Bible. God has chosen you. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Let's discuss some issues related to sovereign grace. Let's, we've kind of looked at some biblical, 
we've kind of looked at all the scriptures that teach election. I mean, there's, there's more. Let's kind of delve into some questions, some concepts, some issues related to this whole idea of sovereign grace that kind of takes into consideration things we've talked to about so far. And we've got this delay on the remote. There we go. Number one, this whole idea of election presupposes sin and guilt. Grace only has meaning in light of depravity. Grace is only grace if there's sin. So there's got to be total depravity. There's got to be total inability. There's got to be enemies of God that are sinners in order for grace to truly be grace. Because if we were all neutral, we wouldn't need grace, would we? We would all just be good enough to get into heaven. Okay, what else about grace? Grace does not think of sinners as merely undeserving, but what? I've been talking about this a lot. Ill-deserving. What does undeserving mean? We don't deserve anything. What does ill-deserving mean? We deserve ill, or you can say hell-deserving. Okay? Grace means that we deserve wrath, we deserve hell, we deserve punishment, we deserve destruction. That's what we deserve by who we are and what we've done. So grace takes into light, that's what we deserve. Also, grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it. If God has to do it, it's not grace. What is it? It's a wage. If you work for an employer 40 hours a week, what does he have to do or she have to do? pay you because you've worked. It's something that you've earned. It's something that you've worked for. It's not grace. It's your wage. It's your working. Grace is not something that you can earn. It's not something you deserve. And God's not obligated to give it. He owes nobody here grace. God owes nobody grace. He has the right to show compassion on who he wants to show compassion. He has the right to show mercy on who he wants to show mercy. If God were to never... Think about it this way. Think about Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what could have God done? He could have said, it's over. I'm done. You sinned once, you're wiped out, you're going to hell. We are through with the human race. And he, would, would God have been wrong? Would God have been unjust? They deserve, because they disobeyed God, they deserve death. Because he said, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. They did it. They disobeyed God. What does he do in an act of grace? If you go back and read Genesis 1, he clothes them with animal skins. Now, if you're thinking, where did, where, where did the animal skins come from? The Bible doesn't tell us, but we have to assume God killed an animal to get the skins. Kind of a foreshadowing of a substitutionary atonement for sin. So God shows grace from the very beginning to Adam and Eve, even though they didn't deserve it. And if he just stopped with Adam and Eve and never created anybody else and sent everybody to hell, God would do nobody wrong. He would be just. He would be not compelled to give it. Now, here's another thing. Grace is not dependent upon any merit or demerit in sinners. It's not how good we are or how bad we are. It is simply God's freedom to bestow grace. 
You can be really, really good. That doesn't mean God has to give you grace. You can be really, really bad, and God can still give you grace. So, I mean, our culture is so geared towards works-based righteousness that the better I am, the better I do. You know, most people, if you press them, like if you were to go out on the streets today, they think that if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds at the end of their life, hopefully they'll get into heaven because they've done enough good. And what does God's grace say? You can stack up all the good you can't, you, all the good you, you can stack up, it's still not good enough. And grace says all the bad you've done, it's not so bad that you can't be forgiven. So it doesn't matter on how good you are or how bad you are, God can show grace. And I kind of already alluded to this, but I'll say it again. God is sovereign in, in that God determines who will receive grace. It's his choice. Now, I told you that in Arminianism, it's the foreknowledge view. God looks down to the corridors of time. He sees who's going to believe. Based upon what God sees, he elects. There's kind of another twist on that view. It's another Arminian twist on that view, and this is called the corporate view of election. And it goes something like this. Yes, those words predestination are in the Bible. Yes, those words choosing are in the Bible, but it doesn't apply to individuals. It applies to Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the one who's been elected. Jesus is the one who's been predestined. And when you choose to be in Jesus, you become elect. So it's not an individual election. It's basically you're on the team. You become elect once you trust in Jesus. You're, you're elect at that point. You're one of the elect. That view really doesn't have much, I guess, weight in my book. Because when you look at all these words, we, last week we talked about what pronouns. God chose what? Us. He foreknew us. It wasn't actions. It wasn't things that we were going to do. Of course God has knowledge of that. But God chose individuals. Now, Let's look at some objections. Because you're probably, if, in my struggle with the doctrines of grace, I raised all these objections I'm going to give to you. And you probably have raised these objections or you're raising them right now. So let's just dive into why we may not like <laughs> this teaching on election. Okay? Let's look at the first one. Unconditional election makes God unfair. It's just unfair. Why would God choose Jacob and not choose Esau? It seems like God's a respecter of persons. It seems like God's playing favorites. God's not being fair. He's not being equitable. Why, 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 would, God not be un, why would God just not choose everybody? And the answer is, I think I've said it enough tonight, God is not under any obligation to save anyone. There's nothing in the universe that moves God to save except for God and his love and his character. So for God to choose to save a great number of people and to not save another great number of people is not unfair. It's God being God. Now let's just ask a simple question. Let's take the New Testament for just a moment. Let's just cut the New Testament out of our Bible, okay? Don't, don't do that. 
but let's just pretend like the New Testament's not there. And just look at the Old Testament. Let me ask you a question in the Old Testament. Whoops. There it goes. Let's just ask a question about the Old Testament. It's this. Has not, God has not treated everyone equally in exactly the same way. Just in the Bible. And let me just give you some examples here of how God acted in one way towards one group of people and another way towards another group of people. Did God provide a sacrificial atonement for the Egyptians? No, he did it just for the Israelites. Did God provide the sacrificial system for the Canaanites? No, just the Israelites. Did God choose every single person to be the father of many nations, or did he choose Abraham? Why didn't he choose, Ab- Why didn't he choose Lot? Why did he choose, you know, Joe Canaanite on the backside of Ur? Why did God choose Abraham? Abraham wasn't looking for God. God showed up and chose Abraham. Did God treat the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and all the other ites in the Old Testament in the same way he did the Israelites? I mean, all through the Old Testament, you can see God showing favor towards either one individual or one group of people versus another. Let's just talk about uh, the New Testament. Did Jesus choose every single person in Galilee to be his 12 disciples, or did he specifically choose 12? Okay. So you see choice all throughout the Bible of God making a certain choice of some people and not other people. And we have no problem with that when it comes in the Old Testament, do we? Most people don't balk at the problem of, well, obviously God chose the Israelites, and he didn't choose the Edomites. We have no problem when it comes to nations, but when it comes to individuals, that's where we have a problem, because it becomes very personal. Because we ask the questions, well, what if my son or daughter is not chosen? Or what if my mom or dad or my best friend or my husband or wife, what if they're not chosen? And that causes that tension, that causes that, that anguish, that causes that, um, I, I guess, that those emotional feelings to happen when we think about God being discriminate in his, in his love. Let me read to you a passage from Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What's Moses saying here about God? Why did God choose the Israelites? Because God wanted to. That's the, that's the final answer we're left with. Why, why does God do it? Simply because he wants to. Out of his love. Now, I'm going to give you a visual illustration here from R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. Okay, you've got two circles there. I, I don't really have these up on the screen, I don't think. You've got two categories, okay? You've got justice... What's justice? Getting what you deserve, right? If you've committed a crime, justice means you, get to, you have to go to jail or pay a fine. Justice means you get the penalty for what you deserve. Okay, there's another category over here called what? Let's just call it non-justice, okay? In the non-justice, 
What's the opposite of justice? Is it, is it, is it injustice? Let's call it non-justice for right now. There's two categories of non-justice. There's injustice and there's mercy. Does God ever commit an injustice in not electing some and electing others? Does God ever commit an injustice? Does he do anything unjust? Because in his justice, he could send everybody to hell, right? For God to show mercy... He's actually showing non-justice, right? He's not giving you what you deserve. It's non-justice, but he's not committing an injustice. Does that make sense? Let me just kind of give you the blanks here. Because I, I think I maybe explained it better in written form. From out of the mass of guilty humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some. What do the rest get? The rest get justice. The saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. But nobody gets injustice. Some get what they deserve as sinners and others get mercy. And God has the right to determine who gets mercy and who will get justice. Now that may be a little confusing. R.C. Sproul does a whole lot better when he gets his whiteboard up and draws the circles. And I've got the video in my office so you can see how he's R.C. Sproul. He can explain a lot better. What I'm just trying to say is that you can never lay at the foot of God that election is unfair. Because God is not doing anybody an injustice by not saving them. When he saves them, he's showing them mercy when they really should be receiving justice. Okay? Let me give you a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. This is his book, The Doctrines of Grace. He says, Election is the only thing that is just. Election alone starts with all people at the same point and on the same level, all of them deserving hell. Then it saves some and passes by others, entirely apart from anything in the elect or reprobate person themselves. So what we're saying in the Calvinistic view is, it puts everybody in an equal playing field. What's the equal playing field? Everyone's dead, hell-deserving sinners. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's more in tune. Nobody uses their free will to somehow have the power to choose. Everybody's dead. And so for God to choose some out of that dead to give them life and to pass over others is not unjust. It's, it's actually merciful. It puts everybody on an equal playing field. I've got this long quote from Charles Spurgeon. Let's read it. And only the way Spurgeon can do it. And I won't try to do it in a British accent because I don't know how Spurgeon spoke. But I'm assuming that in the days without microphones, when he had 6,000 people coming to his church, he had a pretty loud, booming voice. But here's Spurgeon. This is actually a, a sermon of his called Election, of all sermons. But there are some who say it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. Now I will ask you one question. Is there anyone of you here this morning who wishes to be holy? Who wishes to be regenerate? To leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is some, says someone. I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lust and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness, you say you would not care for it. Do you acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety? Dishonesty to honesty, 
You love this world's pleasures better than religion. Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to religion? If you love religion, he's chosen you to it. If you desire it, he's chosen you to it. If you do not, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you do not wish for? Supposing I had in my hand something which you did not value. And I said, I will give it to you at such and such. I will give it to such and such a person. You, will, you would have no right to grumble that I did not give it to you. You could not be so foolish as to grumble that the other has got what you did not care about. According to your own confession, many of you do not want religion, do not want a new heart, a right spirit, do not want the forgiveness of sins, do not want sanctification. You do not want to be elected to these things. Then why should you grumble? You count these things but as husks. And why should you complain of God who has given them to those whom he's chosen? If you believe them to be good and desire them, then they are there for thee. God gives liberally to all those who desire. And first of all, he makes them desire. Otherwise, they never would. If you love these things, he has elected you to them. And you may have them. But if you do not, who are you that you should find fault with God when it is your own desperate will that keeps you from loving these things, your own simple self that makes you hate them? Suppose a man in the street should say, What a shame it is I cannot have a seat in the chapel to hear what this man has to say. And suppose he says, I hate the preacher. I can't bear his doctrine. But still, it's a shame I have no seat. Would you expect a man to say so? No, you would at once say, that man does not care for it. Why should he trouble himself about other people having what they value and he despises? You do not like holiness. You do not like righteousness. If as God has elected me to these things, has he hurt you by it? Ah, but some say, I thought it meant that God elected some to heaven and some to hell. That is a very different matter from the gospel doctrine. He has elected men to holiness and to righteousness and through that to heaven. You must not say that he has elected them simply to heaven and others only to hell. He has elected you to holiness, if you love holiness. If any of you love to be saved by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ elected you to be saved. If any of you desire to have salvation, you are elected to have it. If you desire it sincerely and earnestly, but if you don't desire it, why on earth should you be so preposterously foolish as to grumble because God gives that which you do not like to other people? Now, the amazing thing that Spurgeon does here, do you see what he's doing? He's given an evangelistic plea to people that are balking at election. If you want Jesus, take him. If you want to be saved, be saved. If you want to believe, believe. And guess what? If you do, that's because you're elect. But if you don't want these things, why should you be mad that God's given you something you don't even want? Do you understand what the, kind of what his point is saying here? It's kind of a facetious way of saying God is fair. Now, let's look at this. This next objection is similar to God being unfair. It's, it's almost exactly the same thing, but it's, it's in a different way. Unconditional makes God out to be not loving. A loving God would elect everybody. A loving God would give people the power of choice, so it's up to them. A loving God would not make choices on Jacob and not on Esau, if God is truly a loving God. Let me ask you a question. Or let me just give you a statement. God is love. God loves the world. God loves all people, but not in the same way. You've got to be really careful when you just throw out there, God loves. Because if you look at the Bible, there are different ways that God loves. 
If we mean that when we say God is love, if we mean by that that God loves every single person in exactly the same way, then what do you do with people that are in hell right now and people that are in heaven? Does God love the people in hell the same way as he loves the people in heaven? Let me ask you a question about this. As a husband, I love Don in a way that I don't love Sherry, my ministry assistant. Hopefully, and I mean, I love Don in a very specific way. What does Jesus say? Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. I have a very discriminate love for Don that I don't have for any other woman. And you guys don't have a problem with that. If I were to come up here and say, I love all the sisters at Emmanuel Baptist Church in exactly the same way that I love my wife, you'd probably think I was a little weird. <laughs> you might even fire me or something like that. I can come before the church and say, I love all the children in this church. But I love Aiden and Zach in a very special way. And you wouldn't have a problem with that, would you? Why do I love my wife and why do I love Zach and Aiden the way I do? Because I have an intimate relationship with them by marriage covenant and by birth. God has a special love for his elect that he doesn't show for the rest of the world. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the rest of the world. He lets the sun shine on the rest of the world. He lets the rain fall on their crops. He lets people live. He lets people enjoy the things of this world. He allows people to have an existence where they're not obliterated off the face of the planet. God shows benevolence. God shows love. God shows care to people that, are, that hate him. But God shows a specific discriminant love towards those who are his elect. Now why would we have a problem with a husband loving his wife in a very specific way and have a problem with God loving his elect in a very specific way? Why, why, why do we allow the husband to do that but we don't allow God to do it? So, so John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Does that passage say anything about Calvinism or Arminianism? No. And I've heard both, both I've heard Calvinists World there really means elect. Well, let's not get our theology in the way of what the Bible says. Does the word elect show up there? No, it's the Greek word cosmos. God so loved the world. That's a true statement. Does God love the world? Yes. What did God do for the world? He sent Jesus. Those are statements of fact. God loves the world. God sent Jesus. But what's the qualifier in that passage of Scripture? Who's going to be saved? Only those who are the believing ones. You still see discrimination in that passage because what happens? If you don't believe, what do you experience? You don't experience eternal life. You shall perish. So that verse has nothing to do with Calvinism, Arminianism. As a matter of fact, that word for world doesn't really talk about necessarily the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. That the world is so bad that God would dare love his enemies. And let me just ask you a question based upon what we've seen in John so far. For God so loved the world that whoever believes, based upon what we've seen in John so far, who are the ones who believe? All that the Father gives me will come to me. All right, let's go to another objection. Doesn't Calvinism teach that God predestines only a small group to heaven 
and then damns the rest of humanity to hell. I thought you Calvinists believed that God just saves this small number of people and everybody else is just going to be sent to hell. I don't know of any Calvinist that believes God saves a small, the smallest number he could save. We talked about this last week. What does the Bible say? Who's going to be around the throne in Revelation? A number that no man can count, a multitude, myriads upon myriads, from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So this, this idea that Calvinism teaches that God just saves a small few, that's not Calvinism and it's not biblical. There's a lot of people, millions upon millions, that God saves. Let me give you a definition from the Westminster Confession. Um, West, it's chapter 3, number 5, and chapter 3, number 7. Let me give you their definition of, of election. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ under everlasting glory, out of his, his, mere, free gra- out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance, neither of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Basically what this old British statement is saying is, There's no conditions that had to be met. God chose based upon God's choice. Now, the the next statement is what... Okay, here's here's the issue with election that you've got to deal with. If God elects some to be saved, then does he elect some to not be saved? Is it equal? Because what does God do for the elect? He brings salvation to them. He brings grace to them. He works in them faith. He brings about regeneration. God ensures that those that are dead in their sins will come to faith in Christ. What about those that are lost? Does God work in the lost to make them unbelieved? Does God work in the lost to send them to hell? Does God do something in the lost to make them more evil? No. The answer is no. There's a thing called Hyper-double predestination. And what hyper-double predestination teaches is that um, God works unbelief and sin in the life of the unelect. It's like an evil, it's like God does all these amazing things for the elect, and then the non-elect, he does all of these bad things. He hardens them, he makes them unbelievers, he, he causes them to sin. God works in them the same, the, the, the negative way that he works in the positive way with the elect. Okay, I reject this view. And here's what I believe the Bible teaches. Well, let's just, let me just ask you. If we're dead in our sins... If we are dead in Adam, if we're totally depraved, does God have to do anything to make us more sinful? Does God have to make us unbelieve? What's the natural course of our nature? We hate God. We're rebels against God. God doesn't need to do anything in us. So here's what I believe. In election, God gives grace to some ill-deserving sinners And the rest he just passes over and leaves them in their rebellion. So when we say God elects sinners, here's the lump of clay. Here's the whole lump. The whole lump is sinful. The whole lump does not deserve salvation. The whole of humanity is totally dead and depraved, rebels against God. God chooses some out of that group to be saved. The rest he just leaves alone. 
And if they're left alone, what are they going to do? They're going to suffer for their own sins. God doesn't have to send them to hell. They're already deserving of hell. So that's kind of, let me, let me kind of give you the, um, a statement here from James Boyce again. Uh, some helpful comments in his book, Doctrines of Grace. He says, The reason why some believe the gospel and are saved is that God intervenes in their lives to bring them to faith. He does it by the new birth or regeneration. But those who are lost, and this is the crucial point, are not caused by God to disbelieve. They do that all by themselves. To ordain their end, God needs only withhold the special grace of regeneration. The lost are not sent to hell because God consigns them to it arbitrarily, but as a judgment for their sins. Election is active. Reprobation is passive. In election, God actively intervenes to rescue those who deserve destruction, whereas in reprobation, God passively allows some to receive the, receive the just punishment they deserve for their sins. Here's another, here's another objection that was, that was brought up, I think it was last week or the week before, but I want to come back to it. If it's already determined who's elect, if it's already determined who's going to believe, if God's got it all figured out, why should we pray for lost people and why should we evangelize? Why should we witness? Why should we share Christ? Why should we send missionaries? God's just going to do it. And I'll just give you the, the, the best answer because God tells us to do it. God commands that we evangelize lost people. What does Matthew sixteen fifteen say? The words of Jesus. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Can we argue with Jesus? What does he tell us to do? Preach it to who? The whole creation. Preach it to everybody. He doesn't say, go into all the world and only preach to the elect. He doesn't say, the elect are going to be saved regardless of what you do, so don't go. He says, go and proclaim the gospel, because that's the means I've used to bring to faith my elect. We know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it is a command. God uses means to bring about his ends. So let me give you some of these bullet points here. Whatever you believe about election, whichever side you're on, the fact remains that evangelism is necessary because no man can be saved without hearing the gospel. You can sit here and argue all day about election, who's elect, why are we elect, but the bottom line is nobody's going to get saved unless they hear the gospel because God has chosen the message of the gospel, witnessing, preaching, teaching is the way to bring about salvation. Whatever you believe about election... The fact remains that there is an urgency because people are lost and going to hell without Christ. Are these blanks on yours? Are they? Okay. We consider and argue all we want about election, non-election. Is it $4? Is it unconditional? The bottom line is, right now as we speak, there are people in unreached people groups that are going to hell. And that should be motivate us enough to go share the gospel with them. We should be passionate. Let me just say this. For, my, for myself personally. Calvinists should be the most passionate about sharing Christ because they know that God will save his elect. They're not fatalists. 
Don't ever hear me as your pastor have a fatalistic view that we will never pray for lost people, we will never evangelize, we'll never go on mission trips, God's got it all worked out. We never want to be hyper-Calvinists. That's hyper-Calvinism. We're not fatalists. We don't just, you know, leave it, all, leave it all up to God. Here's the best advice somebody gave me. Work like an Arminian, sleep like a Calvinist. <laughs> In other words... And Spurgeon said this, do evangelism as if it all depended upon you, knowing that it doesn't. It all depends upon God. We work hard at evangelism. We go on mission trips. We pray for lost people. We sow gospel seeds. We share. We labor. We pray. We, we work. We do, do, do evangelism. But at the end of the day, we put our heads on our pillow knowing that we can't save anybody. God's going to be the one that has to save them. He's in control He's sovereign, and he uses us to do it. Here's another little bullet point. We are never called to love just the elect, but all through Scripture we are told to love our neighbor, irrespective of whether he or she is elect or not. I mean, if you're so caught up with who's elect and who's not, you could end up determining who you're going to share Christ with. Well, I don't know if I want to go share Christ with that person because they don't look elect. They're too evil, or they're too um, intimidating, or they're too... Um, so we start playing this game of, well, I'm not going to go to them because God may not have chosen them. No, the Bible says love everybody. Go share with everybody. Okay, the next big bullet point. Election actually makes our evangelism more hopeful and gives us greater confidence that our efforts will not be in vain. We go out knowing that God will save sinners. If I go out hoping that a... Let me just speak as a Calvinist here, okay? You can disagree with me. If I go out and do evangelism hoping that somebody's going to use their free will to come to Christ who's dead in their sins, I am hopeless and futile. It makes no sense for me to go out and do that in my theology because they're never going to come if they're dead in their sins. I go out knowing that they're dead in their sins and God has got to do a work of regeneration, a miracle, and he will do it. Not every time I share But to those who he's chosen, God will bring about their salvation. So I can go with confidence. I don't have to worry about twisting people's arms. I don't have to worry about having a 30-minute altar call with just as I am playing and dimming the lights and come on down, come on down. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. You may have raised your hands 10 times in the past 10 years, getting saved 10 times. I don't have to play those games. Now, yes, we call people to the front at the end of our services. Yes, we call people to respond, but we don't manipulate, we don't arm twist. We know that God is sovereign. If he's going to save people, he's going to save people, but he uses us to do it. It really frees you up from having to be manipulistic and manipulistic. (laughs) Manipulative. And let me ask you a question. When you're praying for a lost person's salvation, what are you praying for? I guarantee you, if we had a group of Arminians in this room tonight and we started praying for people's salvation, when they started praying, they'd all turn into Calvinists, whether they knew it or not. Because what would they pray? God, save my lost friend. God, draw my lost friend to you. God, please work in their life. I hope they'd pray that. Now, maybe if they're true, true Arminians, maybe they pray, I've never heard an Arminian pray this, God, help them use their free will to come to you. I don't know, have you ever heard anybody pray that? Regardless of what you believe about election, when you start praying for lost people, you automatically become a Calvinist because what are you praying for God to do? Save. 
I've never heard somebody pray, Lord, please give this person enough of the free will that they can come to you. Woo them just enough to get them over the hump so they can choose you. When people pray, were they desperate? Lord, save this person. Lord, bring this person to you. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, do a work in their heart. Let me give you a quote from J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. By the way, that's a really excellent book. It's a pretty easy read. It's, he, he balances the whole issue of evangelism, the title of the book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, how, how they work together. He says this, You pray for the conversion of others. In what terms do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think so. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them. That he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. So we pray for lost people. As a matter of fact, we're having this big Easter push. Um, and I'll be introducing this in a, in a few weeks. You know, three weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to have a major evangelistic push. We're going to do prayer walking neighborhoods. On a whole, all of Sterling, we're going to prayer walk. We're going to do door hangers the next Saturday, inviting every citizen in Sterling to our church on Sunday morning. On, on Easter Sunday. I'm going to give out little cards in, in a few weeks on a Sunday morning for you to write down three people that you're praying for specifically for their salvation. We're going to have a special prayer meeting the Sunday before Easter on Palm Sunday for lost people. In our Tuesday morning men's group, we pray for lost people. On Sunday night in prayer meeting, we pray for lost people. In your growth groups, you pray for lost people. We are a church that believes in praying for lost people and doing evangelism. How can I be a Calvinist and do it? I'm not schizophrenic. I just believe the Bible teaches you do it because God says it, he's in control. All right, let me give you another big one. This is probably the hardest, this is really the hardest one to answer because there really is maybe not a good answer in your mind. There's the cop-out answer I guess I can give you. If God is totally sovereign, as we've said, and God can do what he wants, why didn't he choose to save everyone? If he could have, why didn't he? Have you ever thought about that? If God had the power to do it, why didn't he just save everybody? Why make the choice? Why discriminate? And we can say it's his decision. What's the answer, What's the answer not? The answer cannot be that some are less deserving than others. Because all are equally deserving of wrath. And so really, to answer this question, the only answer I've got is it goes back to Romans 9. I will show mercy to who I will show mercy. I will show compassion to who I show compassion. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? I don't have an answer for that. Because I don't think the Bible answers that. There's some things the Bible just doesn't answer. The only thing we can see, open your Bibles to Ephesians. I've been in Ephesians all the past, this, this, I've been meditating on this passage of Scripture for the past month. And since I've got a sermon coming up in a few weeks on this passage, I'm even digging into it more. It's the longest sentence in the Bible, in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one long honking sentence. And there's one statement in verse 11 
that I think just wraps up everything in my, it settles it in my mind. Whether I like it, whether I agree with it. Remember I told you guys on my journey when I came to the doctrines of grace and I kind of had a crisis moment in my office where I, I threw my Bible across the room and got mad at God because I was becoming a Calvinist, which I vowed I would never become. And I went home and started talking about it with my wife and, and she said, Sean, if this is the God of the Bible, and this is how he's revealed himself, you have no choice but to submit to him, whether you like it or not. Oh, Don, why'd you have to say that? She was right. Ephesians 1.11. It wraps it up for me. Maybe not for you, but it, it really, if, if you can't, let me just say this. In your journey to understand these doctrines, if you can't just settle on Ephesians 1.11 and be, and be comfortable, be confident, be secure in it, I would just say meditate upon that, that verse. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does God work according to the counsel of his will? All things. God does every single thing according to his purpose, his counsel. So there's a reason behind it. There's a purpose behind it. We may never know the reason behind it. I'll just tell you this. I don't know why I'm elect. I don't know why you're elect. I don't know why God saved me. I don't know why I was chosen to live in America in a Christian family to hear the gospel at a young age when there are people dying in dark places right now who've never heard the name of Jesus. Is it because I'm better? Is it because God liked me better? Is it because I somehow was more worthy of hearing the gospel? Absolutely not. And it's not a cause of boasting, it's a cause of humility because God saved me and I don't know why. Spurgeon said, I don't know why God saved me because if it would have been me doing the saving, I would not have saved myself because I know how wicked I am. So I don't know why you're saved. I don't know why another person's not saved. God doesn't answer that question. All we can bank on is that he does all things according to the counsel of his will. And we've got to be, com- we've got to be comfortable with that. We don't understand it. He doesn't reveal that to us all the times. He does it because he does it. So, with that being said, are there any questions on this whole issue of election? Next week, we're going to dive into the atonement. And I'll just give you a little hint. I don't like the word, the L in the tulip is limited atonement. I don't like the term limited atonement because it carries some baggage with the whole word limited. I I prefer the term particular atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement. Um... But any, any questions tonight on, on election, on what we talked about so far? I do have a video to show, but our, our, our Shane just left. So um, think of a question real quick. Dick, you have a question? Shane, can you get that, can you get that Amazing Grace video ready in chapter Unconditional Election? If, if 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 we need to, if we need to show the video, yes, Dick. Okay, tell me again. Ma- 
Okay, that's a that's a great question. Ask your question. I know. I Okay, let's read the text. W- w- tell me again where it is. It's Matthew 23. Um, oh, is it 23:37? Okay. Okay, let's read this passage because a lot of people don't read the, the, the full meaning of the passage. Let's just read it. O Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I, how often would I, how often would I have had, why can't I say this? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. So who's he talking to? First of all, who is he talking to? Context, context. Go back up to Matthew 23, verse 1. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the crowds and to the disciples. Who's he talking about? The scribes and the Pharisees. This is addressed to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Those who are in power. Those who sit in the seat of Moses. Those who have influence in religious matters over the city of Jerusalem. Go back to verse 37. Who's Jesus talking to? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Who's he talking to? The Pharisees. The leaders. Those that are in that strain of thought or that that line of killing the prophets. How often I would have gathered who? Your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. What's Jesus saying? The Pharisees are the ones that are not coming. The Pharisees are the ones that are putting yokes on the children of Israel. It's not here saying that these people are willing to come. Is your question, Dick, that it seems that um, God's trying to do something, but they weren't willing to to receive what God was, was, was offering them? Is that kind of the question you're asking? I want to make sure I... Yes. Yes. Yes, I believe God love I believe God God loves all people. But not in the same way. That's just my belief. 
And when we get to the, when we get to the L next week, I may explain to you why If God has a special love for his elect in that he has brought them to heaven, given them all spiritual blessings in Christ, shown them grace and favor, and yet those that are burning in hell right now who are dying in their sins, for God to have the same love for those in hell as he does for his own children, we don't even allow that in human categories, do we? Does that make sense? It, for, to me, if God, this is just my opinion. I'll just share my opinion. If God loves everyone equally, then the cross is not as meaningful because Jesus didn't die for his bride and doesn't show a special love for his bride the way he shows everybody's the same recipient of Christ's love, even those that aren't his bride that are in hell right now. That's just my opinion. Yes, Dick. And I think I, I, and I tried to mention that view, and maybe I didn't do it very clearly when I talked about that corporate election, that Christ is the one who's the elect one. And if you're in Christ, you kind of get in. Is that kind of what you're saying, that he's the one who's the elected one? He's the one who is the chosen one. And when you choose to get into Christ, you become one of the elect. Is that kind of, is that clearly explaining your view, or is it, there's a different nuance? More so, yeah, somewhat, but it is not that. Okay. Okay. You know, when we talk about calling, really, you go, we're going systematically through TULIP, but they all link together. When we talk about the I, irresistible grace, I don't like that term either because it's confusing. I like to use the word sovereign regeneration, the calling. When we talk about the calling of God, regeneration, how a sinner comes to faith in Christ, you'll kind of see this whole issue of the views of, of, of how the calling, kind of what you were saying, Dick, of some can accept that call, some can reject that call, depending on which view you have on that. I don't know if I answered your question, Dick, or if I danced around. I'm not sure there is one. Okay. <laughs> just bringing it up just for point of... Any other questions? Yes, Sharon. Yeah, that's the, way it's, that's the way it's worded. 
Many people, many people don't read the, the, the many people don't read that read it. They they they, they kind of link them all together as opposed to seeing the distinction between the Pharisees and the children of Jerusalem. Yeah. Yes, Brent. No, that's fine. Okay, the question that Brent has is how do you deal with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Because it seems like God did something to Pharaoh. Um, My personal opinion is this. Pharaoh's a case in point where God did something unique in Pharaoh that maybe he doesn't do in all of unbelievers. As a specific, because God says, I've done this to show my power. It was, it was a, when you look, when you look at some events in biblical history, you see some amazing things happening. What are the amazing events in history? Things surrounding Moses and the Red Sea, that was a big miraculous event. Jesus, big miraculous events. Acts, big miraculous events. Look at the rest of the Bible, pretty normal. Maybe some miracles here and there. So you got these big moments in redemptive history. Moses in the Red Sea, Jesus, the apostles, where some amazing things happen. Some scholars believe that in those periods, God does some special things that he may not do in the other periods. Especially like in Acts with the whole, you know. So one view is to say that was a special work in Pharaoh that God doesn't do in everybody. It was an example with Pharaoh. There's some Calvinists that may lean a little bit more on the hyper-Calvinist side that say, no, actually, there are people that God can harden. God can make them more, worse sinners than they are. Now, the, the paradox is, um, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it says God hardened his heart. So they're both doing it. So... Um, my personal view is that God did something unique in Pharaoh that he may, but it doesn't mean God can't do it in somebody. I can't, one thing, you, one thing that you shouldn't say is God can't do something, unless clearly in scripture it says he can't do it, like God cannot lie. But when we start saying God couldn't or God wouldn't do that, we need to be careful because what are we making a judgment call? We're saying we know something God, so God could harden people. I just don't know if you see enough evidence of it happening. The, the, only other, the only other issues that you see that, let me take that back as I'm thinking through this, is that when you look at false teachers, like in Timothy and Titus and Second Peter, when he talks about false teachers, he says they've gotten so far that their conscience has been seared. They've gotten so far down, they've gotten so blinded, they've gotten so wrapped up in sin that, that I think God just gives them up to their passions and their lust. It's almost like this. God can show his wrath in two different ways. What's one way God can show his wrath? Sodom and Gomorrah. Boom, I'm going to come down and bring fire and, just, and show my wrath. Okay? Romans 1, how does God show his wrath? He lets people go their own way, which may be some worse sometimes. God may say, I'm not going to rain down fire. If you want to indulge in that type of behavior, my hand's off of you. You go on. 
which means God doesn't do anything in your life. And if you're left to your own sinful devices, you're going to go down a really bad path. God may not have to work anything in you. He just removes anything that's going to... He may even remove common grace at that point and say, okay, you're just going to go on to... I don't know who he does that to or when he does it, but I think there's evidence in Scripture to say that God can get to a point where he says, okay, you've gone down a course I'm giving you over. I don't know if that answers your question, Brent. Other Brent. got two Brents tonight. Oh, okay. You're st- are you talking about when, when the scripture says, like in, like in Jonah, where it says God saw that, that they had repented, and he, or, or God was sorry he made, like in Noah, God was sorry he made, that these, these things where it says, says like, sounds like God changed his mind. Is that the question you're asking? Well, I don't think God ever changes his mind. And I don't think God reacts to situations. It's not like, you know, we're playing this chess game and we make a move and God, God doesn't know what we're going to do. So he makes his move. And God knows everything. God determines everything. God's sovereign over everything. I think when you look at those passages in the Old Testament where God relented, it could just be God's response to a situation. It could have been planned in eternity past. It's just we're being reported that God did that. But it could have been part of his counsel in eternity past that he was going to do that but it could be from the point of view of the, of the writer or the point of view that God relented. And it's not because he was reacting to what he saw, but God does say in Jeremiah, if a people repent, I will relent. If they don't repent, I won't relent. So there are some conditions there. God says, you know, they're doomed for destruction, but if they repent, I'll change, I'll, I'll change what I was going to do to them. Not that he changed his mind. He set out a law, if people repent, I will show mercy. And so it could just be reporting what God did in response to what he already said he was going to do. And if people repent, he shows mercy. Is that, I don't know if that, that may be a dodge in the question. Yeah, these are hard things to think about. Any other final questions? Is your mind like goo tonight? Let me just ask you a question. We, we've, we've done the two. We still have the lip left to do. Um, or what? Pip. pip, yeah, two pip. Um, has this been beneficial or has this been eye-opening or has this, has this been, I mean, some of you have already embraced, some of you are already on the, some of you are already on the trajectory, you've embraced this. You, you, you believe the doctrines of grace. Some of you are like, these are things I've believed, but I didn't know there was a way to put it all together. There's some, I've never heard this before in my life, and this is the first time I've ever heard it. And there may be some of you that are like, I'm not there at all, and I wish Sean would just shut up. Or, or there's some that said, I'm not coming anymore because I don't want to hear this. I guess my question for you that have come, has this been clearly explained? Not that you have to agree with everything I'm saying, but has it been clearly articulated what... 
Because remember what I said from the first night, I don't want to stick up a straw man and try to tear it down of what Calvinism or what Arminianism is. I want to stick up the real beliefs and then let's deal with what the text says. Because it's easy to stick up what we think it is, like a, a character or straw man and then knock it down. I don't want to do that. I want to clearly go through what the belief systems are. And hopefully I've been fair. Of course I'm going to have a bias. You can never come to something with neutral. You're not neutral. You're never neutral. As a matter of fact, I was predestined to come and share this with you guys, okay? I didn't use my free will. I was pre... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Any last questions? We've got about five minutes. If any of you want to check out any books of mine, I've got a... In my study, I've got one whole bookshelf shelf, all of Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism, Arminianism books. I also have the Amazing Grace video, which, was, which goes through the, all of the tulips with a lot of different video interviews. I've got John Piper. He's done a teaching on tulip uh, to his church. We've got that on DVD. You can check out. We've got R.C. Sproul, his teachings chosen by God on DVD. I can just tell you, don't check those out because when you compare those guys to me, you may not want to come back and you may just want to just listen to those guys. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm just joking there. Those are really good resources. Um, the John Piper, the R.C. Sproul, I'm trying to think of anything else I have in my office that would be video-driven. Monergism, if you want to do some more research, go to monergism.com. I think at the end of this thing, Monergism has a a chart. They have Arminianism and Calvinism side-by-side, the five points just side-by-side so you can see how they line up. Um, But yes, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ephesians, Ephesians 1. As a matter of fact, I was with the pastor this summer, and we were talking, he's from another church, met him for the first time, and he was talking about Ephesians, how, well, let's just put it this way. He was very anti-Calvinistic. He didn't know I was a Calvinist, but the whole time we were together for, for, for an extended period of time, um, I'll just put it this way. He, he was one of the pastors on the Nicaragua mission trip. Not Joel, but one of the other pastors making digs about Calvinism the whole trip, and I just kept my mouth shut. And he was talking about Ephesians has nothing to do with individual election. Ephesians has nothing to do with predestination. It all has to do about Jesus as the chosen one. And when you choose and use your free will to be in Jesus, then you are in him. Then you're one of the elect. He goes, people, most commentators miss that, but it's so clear. That was what, what his view was on that. Ephesians 1, I guess, is where he gets it. You're asking, where did, where did, what verses do they get that? Corporate election? Oh, to disprove it. Well, I don't know if there's verses that come out and quite disprove it, but, I mean, every verse we've looked at, who are the recipients of this grace? Us, we. They're personal pronouns relating to people. Not Romans 8, chain of redemption, golden chain of redemption. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, all that the Father gives me. It's all talking about people. Now, there is a verse in First Peter that Jesus, it says Jesus is the, was the first, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus was the predestined one before the foundation of the world. That's the verse that says Jesus is the chosen one. And yes, Jesus is, I mean, it was planned, it was predestined, he was going to die on the cross, that was foreknown. But it doesn't really say anything about us using our free will to choose to be in Jesus and then by that. See, here's the issue. Both Arminians and Calvinists believe election takes place before the foundation of the world and it's individual election. 
Yeah, that's a, that's another view out there, the corporate view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Dick probably knows more about it than I do because it sounds like you you may talk to Dick afterwards. Uh. Sure. One last question. Anybody got one? If not, I guess I'll be available after, at the front here if anybody has any. All right. Well, let's pray, and um, we'll, we'll go home. Father, thank you for, um, Lord, I thank you for grace that, um, saves us when we don't deserve it. And Father, none of us here can say you owed it to us or that you were obligated to give it to us for we were dead and depraved and rebels. So we just say thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die for us, sending your Holy Spirit to give us new life. Help us never to get over amazing grace. Lord, I just pray for those that are in this room that the journey in their minds and hearts would, would be a good one, Lord, as they struggle with these things. That, Lord, they would go to the Scriptures and search the Scriptures and, and look diligently in the Scriptures and not take my word for it or anybody's word for it, but they would be led by the Holy Spirit through the written word to, to see what's there in the text and to, to struggle. And like we've said every week, Father, we want to be charitable as we leave that these aren't dividing issues. These aren't divisive issues that we can still love each other in Christ. These are doctrines, not dogmas. And in all things, we want to glorify you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray.